Hi everyone, Kathy here. I wanted to address the use of some words that some listeners might find to be adult or inappropriate. In this episode, we are talking about uh, queer erasure. So we're using some words that have historically been used um, by queer people to either their owned or um, they are an insult. But I think it's really, really important to think about why we think these words might be inappropriate or um, why they are taken away from our history. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks. Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and educator. And my name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. Yeah, so today we're going to be um, talking about some of the history of queer underground comics. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, do you want to say what you have? Yeah, and I'm going to be talking about the career of Jeffrey Catherine Jones. Right. So I'm going to be doing sort of more of a biography in my segment after E does more of a history. Yeah. Um, And I am going to be discussing um, some of the history of uh, queer comics, specifically in um, the American underground and sort of like the origins there. Uh, and this, when I say some history, what I mean by that is um, what I ha- what we wanted to do was avoid any sort of speculation or things that weren't sort of um, clearly committed to the like scholarly record, yeah. so to speak. Um, but the issue with that is, of course, that a lot of history, especially queer, like when you're talking about queer history. Um, a lot of things get erased, and a lot of things are in the nuance and in the speculation. And so when I say, um, like, when I talk about the things I'm going to talk about, and I say, like, this is the first, um, this is the first according to the the sort of historical canon that's been established. There might be something else that mm-hmm. I'm just not able to access at this point in time, but I never want someone to, like, walk away thinking that this is, like, a definitive first you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so that's sort of like my approach there yeah and I think that's true so what I'm going to be talking about in my segment after E does more of a history of the queer underground Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about Jeffrey Catherine Jones um she was born January 1944 and she passed away May 2011 she was a painter illustrator and comics artist she was a trans woman she transitioned much later in life Mm -hmm. and so she she had a unique position in the world of comics. Um, she did. She was there during like the comics boom, forties, fifties. She got her start in the sixties doing underground comics and fantasy art, um, and she then later on started doing more fine art work. But also, I f- feel like the same thing that E was talking about is it's not 
it's never a neat canon. There yes. isn't like a clear definitive thing. Her work isn't necessarily queer underground, but she got her start in fanzine world. Mm-hmm. And it's just none of it can be so simplified as that. Yeah. So sort of um, what we're doing and what I'm doing is sort of presenting like a curated slice. Yeah. And then I encourage you, as always, uh, to look at our sources and do more digging on your own and look into it more if you're interested. And I'm going to be doing the opposite. It's going to be a very uncurated amalgamation of facts about her. Right. Because a one human is very complicated. Yeah, of course. But I just think she's great, so I wanted to focus on Yeah, I'm super excited. And I'm going to talk about like her and her education of, like, uh like art i'm gonna try i'm gonna i'm gonna get education in there i swear (laughs) um before we get started in e segment we should say we are recording in the same room and we are slap happy (laughs) what does that mean um it means that we are i'm i keep making jokes at you and distracting you usually we can't see each other in the face it is yeah well we've done this once before we have i think we were more tired that day so we were like let's just get it done i can't stop making you laugh and you can't stop coughing into the microphone (laughs) (laughs) so why don't we get started oh my god okay um so i'm just gonna jump us right in uh with a pull quote this is from the rootledge companion to comics which was published in 2016 and it's from a specific chapter called lgbtq representation in comics written by um ajuan mance so uh mance writes alternative by definition gay newspapers and magazines provided the earliest platform for lgbtq comic artists to publish depictions of openly queer and trans characters in the u.s The earliest known publication to feature a recurring gay comic strip was Drum, a gay men's magazine out of Philadelphia. Do you have a year for that? So Drum began, uh, it was published monthly beginning in 1964 by the homophile activist group, the Janus Society, and edited by Clark Polak. And this is information, what I was just saying, information from um, the Fire Island's Pines Historical Preservation Society. It's just a website sort of dedicated to Fire Island, uh, which is a yeah. popular gay locale. And so they have some queer history Near on there. New York City, right? Yes. Cool. Yes. So Drum differed from earlier homophile magazines in that it included a combination of news and erotica. Beginning in April 1965, it featured the first ongoing gay-themed comic strip, the erotic parody comic Harry Chess, That Man from Auntie by AJ. Okay. <laughs> That sounds awesome. Yeah, it sounds really cool, right? Um, So that is sort of what is considered... There's some other uh, gay-specific comics, like, you see beforehand are, like, illustrations. Like, Tom of Finland was a Finnish artist who was really popular uh, kind of in the 50s for his uh, homoerotic illustrations. But you're sort of focusing on the United States, yeah, he was popular in the U.S. Yeah, I was wondering, when did he start? Was he popular in the 50s when he was working? Or Yeah, um, I have a, a article by uh, Hilary Shute I'm going to talk about later, but she uh, says that comics about gay men were slower to form, although the artists known of Tom of Finland and his drawings of well-endowed muscle men were significant to gay culture starting in the 1950s. Cool. So yes, there were some, like, so homoerotic art has always existed. I'm speaking specifically to ongoing comic strips that were published. So the next event I want to talk about is a comic called Come Out Comics that was published in 1973 by Mary Winks, 
This is the first full-length lesbian underground comic. It's not the first comic about a lesbian. Yeah. In 1972, uh, Trina Robbins in Women Comics Number 1 released a three-page story called Sandy Comes Out, which was um, billed as a story about a young woman coming out and joining a gay hippie commune framed as a true-life comic about a friend of the artist. So Mary Wings comic, which came out a year later, um, Mary, Mary Wings is a lesbian, Trina Robbins is not. You point that out because Mary Wings was the first lesbian to create yes. a lesbian comic, but Trina Robbins was the first to lesbian character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and all these firsts is like Again, it's, it's not like yeah. literally the I doubt it's literally the yeah, first. It's yeah. just the like what we have. <laughs> so and like the specific context. So it's interesting to me, um writings on come out comics bill it as in response to different things, when I was looking at um, the Lambiex Comiclopedia, and Lambiex is um, the world, they on their website they say they're the world's o- oldest comic shop and sequential art gallery in Amsterdam, found in nineteen sixty or yeah nineteen sixty eight. Um, so their little state, the Comicpedia is like an online encyclopedia of theirs that basically talks about a bunch of different comics. Mm. Um, so they mm. posit that uh, Come Out Comics was created in response specifically to Sandy Comes Out. This article, this sort of like bigger article that I have that has like a lot of information in it um, from the Paris Review written by uh, Hilary Shute called The Rise of Queer Comics. She describes Come Out Comics as being inspired by the perceived heterosexism of feminist underground comics. So there was a feminist comic scene, but it was primarily straight women. That inspires Mary Wings, um, who was 24 when the book came out, to publish Come Out Comics. So this is quoting directly from Shoot right now. A groundbreaking standalone title that paved the way for queer comics of all kinds to claim a place in the field. The underground inspired that kind of creative practice. If you perceived a gap, you could fill it yourself. So that's sort of what like comes up a lot in um, my research here is that um, alternative spaces are where we start to see these like quote unquote firsts. Alternative magazines, alternative comic publishing as opposed to mainstream venues. And the idea of alternative, like the um, do-it-yourself, DIY. Yes. Like, um... So soon after uh, Come Out Comics by Mary Wings, Women's Comics published its first lesbian contribution by an actual lesbian, Roberta Gregory's Modern Romance, also like Wings comic book, a coming out story. So that's interesting too, is that all three of these titles that I've talked about, all of them were coming out, like stories about coming out. Uh, mm. Which nowadays, in contemporary times, we think of that as kind of a trope. Okay. But uh, back then, and this is also during, we t- this is during the same time period that we've talked about before when second wave feminism, the politics are personal, or the personal is political, and autobio becoming sort of a revolutionary thing because non-cishet white men hadn't ever been given sort of an opportunity to discuss their experiences publicly. Um, so this was like radical at the time. Cool. Yeah. So Hillary talks a little bit about other um, lesbian comics. So after Modern Romance, uh, Gregory goes on to publish a comic called Naughty Bits in the 90s, starring the character Bitchy Bitch. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And the spinoff collection Bitchy Butch. Um, Wings followed up in 1976 with another comic book, Dyke Shorts. The work coming out of the underground was substantial and personal claiming space for nuanced stories that previously hadn't found expression in comics or in most other media. When Bechdel started drawing her comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For, 
1983, there was already such a thing as a lesbian cartoonist, she notes. I didn't have to invent it or fight for it or suffer over it. I just did it. Um, people tend, or I've seen in my research, uh, sort of, uh, lesbian history and gay history tends to be very, um, divided, like, not divided, but, like, talked about on separate terms, Mm. um, as opposed to being sort of on, like, on one cohesive timeline. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's, it seems to me that it's sort of a modern, like, these, like, clear divisions between identities, as, like, language sort of becomes more nuanced and ideas sort of spread. Um, I I don't have, I mean, I don't have anything sort of on where those divisions came from with me right now. Um, Oh, that's fine. I don't need you to speculate. Yeah, but there is a lot of, there is a lot of academic work about where those divides come from. Okay. If you look into it. Yeah, cool. As we encourage you to. So, sort of going back to gay comics uh shoot in this article talks about the country's oldest lgbt interest magazine which was founded in 1967 the advocate which has always featured cartoons and comics as a form of reflecting however humorously on gay life and she notes um and rupert kennard's cathartic comics an early version of which first appeared in his college paper in 1977 before later migrating to multiple alternative weeklies notably featured the first continuing african-american gay characters in one comic strip the brown bomber a man and diva touche flambe a woman it's <laughs> a really good name so this is again still continuing with shoots um but the central figure in gay comics is shirley howard cruz a respected cartoonist raised in alabama who began an underground comic strip barefoot's the titular character was always barefoot in 1971. Five years into its publication, the strip's head drac came out as gay. Cruz know this choice would mark his own public coming out, and though he struggled with the decision to draw gay content, he was encouraged ultimately by Mary Wings to take the leap into that subject matter. Cruz would go on to become the founding editor of the field-defining comic book Gay Comics published by the underground press Kitchen Sink starting in 1980. It may have taken longer than other underground titles to coalesce, but its significance has become enormous. And it lasted 18 years, longer than most underground publications, excluding women's comics, which lasted 20 years. Women's comics being the one I mentioned before, started by Trina Robbins um, in 72. Was that still shoot? Yes, that was all shoot. Okay. Yes. Interestingly, uh, gay comics, this is, I'm quoting shoot, aim for inclusivity and to consolidate queer underground comics. It came with a tagline, lesbians and gay men put it on paper. (laughs) So like what I've been talking about with that sort of division between lesbian and gay content, this is um, Cruz intentionally starting this comic where he's like, no, I want all the voices together. So I also wanted to talk, um, take a slight departure from in the same vein, but not underground comics, um, and talk about um, a little bit of zine history. Well, I feel like underground and alt-weekly and stuff is a zine history. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's all DIY publication or... Yeah, yeah. I, I just mean it's not part of the specific underground comics movement. I guess I disagree. That's fair. But also, like, dividing history into different sections isn't a real thing. Yes, that's right. It's yeah. all just stuff that happened in the past, right? Yeah, and we kind of pick dates. Oh. Like, this this <laughs> yeah, is the time. I, I feel like they are... I think all I'm objecting to is I, f- I think it's still part of the same continuum. Fair. Okay. Yeah. yeah I think that's all I'm saying. Well, um, we're still in the 1980s. So, um, G.B. Jones, 
and Bruce LaBruce launched a zine called uh, JDs, which stood for Juvenile Delinquents, in 1985. A zine that aimed to critique both the bourgeoisification of the gay movement and the problematic sexual politics of punk, an aim which they achieved by showcasing an array of their own work alongside the singular musings of other disenfranchised queer creatives. And that was from that was from an article called um, Days Digital Revisiting the Seminal Queer Core Movement uh, from 2016. So it sort of began, um, this is, so in this article, they talked to um, LaBruce, Bruce LaBruce, uh, and LaBruce said, G.B. Jones and I uh, started JDs in the mid-80s at a very particular moment. Gay assimilation was already starting back then, accelerated by the AIDS crisis, so the gay movement was already distancing and disassociating itself from its more unruly, extreme, and anti-establishment elements, queers who did not fit into the gay-white bourgeoisie patriarchy. So what they wanted to do, right, like their aim here is to be very provocative and sort of not only stand against the broader homophobic culture, but this, what they perceived as a bourgeoisie, white, gay, assimilist movement that was beginning. In the 80s. In the 80s. Yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. G.B. Jones, I thought she lived in Canada. Yeah, this actually, they did begin in Canada. Okay. I just am clarifying our North American geography yeah so oh yeah this is a good so this is an article from pitchfork um called queering the pitch on jds and the roots of queer core by eric torres this is from 2015 in the beginning jds operated in fantasy as much as reality wells clear to jones and labruce that early punk was rooted in queer lineage the germs the dicks the screamers etc those are all bands yeah um, the, the miasma of homophobia was still very a very visible element to the punk and hardcore scenes of 80s, just as it was practically everywhere in Western culture at the time. When we discovered a lot of resistance towards us and homophobia and the supposedly, supposedly radical punk scene, we positioned ourselves against punk orthodoxy by calling for a return to the roots of punk, which were much more sexually revolutionary and experimental and, of course, homosexual. Uh, LaBruce said of JD's in an interview with Gothic Magazine. So for me, punk and homopunk have always been more about strategy and spectacle than social reality. So what's interesting here is that when they began, they did not think it was going to become a big thing. And they, but they, when they printed the zine, they treated it as if it was already a thing. Like queer core, you mean? Yes, queer core. So th- this is um, LaBruce and Jones coined the word queer core in cool. the scene. So this is a quote from Queer Core, Queer Punk Media Subculture by uh, Karan Nolt. Even though at first queer core was more myth than reality, as LaBruce uh, muses, initially queer core was a Wizard of Oz style illusion that, despite being comprised of only two dykes and one lonely fag, ended up fostering an underground buzz. Over time, however, this underground buzz became the cacophony of community as Jones and LaBruce captured the collective imaginations of their audience, calling into being the very queer punk scene that they had so cunningly envisioned. So this began with just these two starting, and then it grew into this whole queer core movement, which encompassed zine culture, um, zines like uh, Johnny Noxima and Rex Boy's Bimbox, um, which was in the early 1990s, Jenna Von Brooker's fervidly feminist uh, quote, um, Jane gets a divorce in 1993. So it started out with like the zine and it grew into sort of a multimedia experience. Um, They were film and art students. So they, from the beginning were also like involved in music scenes. Um, 
it sort of became its own like music punk scene zines everything um performance artist uh who court uh days the days digital article calls um a cult icon in her own right um vaginal cream davis um sort of started in queer core or and so like it just sort of became like this whole thing from like this one little diy movement where was this happening started in toronto and then spread throughout canada and america North America. So that sort of brings us up. And then like in contemporary, I mean, it's so, so big now. (laughs) I mean, most of the people, most of the people I've talked about today are still alive. Yeah. Right. Like this is all very recent history. Mary Wings is alive. Trina Robbins is alive. Gay comics. Is that still being published? Gay comics stopped in 98. It ran for 25 issues. So, um, but this is all like very recent history. And that's sort of one of the, like, broader points was that it's very, very difficult to go back further than, like, very recent history when people who are still alive are sort of able to explain themselves, right? And, like, label themselves Mm. and make themselves visible versus, like, trying to, like, a lot of queer historians, what they're doing is sort of digging through these archives and trying to piece things together. Yeah. Speculating and reading between the lines. Yes. Yeah. And I actually have a source I want to talk about specifically to that point. This is a book called Out of the Closet into the Archives, Researching Sexual Histories. It's by um, Jamie Cantrell and Amy L. Stone, published in 2015. And this book sort of goes in to uh, the difficulties with archiving queer history. Um, So it has a bunch of different sections and I highly encourage if you're interested in the subject to look into it Mm -hmm. um but I like this is sort of from the opening it says um archives supposedly create legibility a tidy organization of records that correspond to the organization of sources into neat boxes and files this meticulous organization is however the product of subjective determinations made by curators historians and archivists at different moments and against imprecise standards emotion-laden struggles and challenges that extend to the researchers handling those material. So when we are trying to construct an archive, which when they're speaking of archive, they're speaking of a physical or digital space where documents are preserved for his, Mm. for for researchers to use in their research. I think an archive can also be something like what Kathy and I are doing, where we are kind of creating our own foundation mm-hmm. um, based on our research that's influenced by our own uh, biases uh, and perceptions. So that's like a thing that's really interesting is that like all of the archives that we have to work from to try to make sense of this history was made by a person or people with their own perceptions and understandings of things. There is... um This is another quote from Out of the Closet into the Archives. Um, As Susan Stryker, uh, Susan Stryker being a uh, trans historian, um, as Susan Stryker suggests, there are normative forces at work in archives and the making of LGBT history, downplaying the history of some things over others. Um, Similarly, in If Memory Serves, Gay Men Aids and the Promise of Queer Past, scholars Christopher Castiglia and Christopher Reed 
argue that AIDS created a form of gay amnesia, wiping out memories of not only everything that came before, but of the remarkably vibrant and imaginative ways that gay communities respond to the catastrophe of illness and death and sought to memorialize our losses. So, like, like I said, almost every uh, figure I've talked about today is still alive mm-hmm. and thus able to canonize their own work in a way. Um, but there are lots of people who are making things that maybe didn't get that chance because of events like AIDS yeah. or just history washing people away, you know? So it is, it's challenging. It's difficult to try to extract history pre-1950s, particularly, is sort of where it becomes incredibly fraught. Yeah. So, and also, I've only been talking about um, queerness in the form of sexuality, uh, like gay men and lesbians, and not trans creators uh, or trans comics, of which I was unable to find anything, <laughs> despite <laughs> no. my best efforts. Yeah. And I'm, don't get me wrong, um, I'm not working with access to a lot of academic stuff, so I'm sure some history definitely exists. Maybe. And but and again, it's like I'm looking at specifically comics history. So that's like a whole other like Yeah, and I think there's also a question of starting to just build our own history using primary sources rather than academic paper. Yeah, exactly, that too. And it's it's so hard to find primary sources. From- no, no, no. Pri- primary sources are like a trans comic. We have those. Yeah, we do. I only own modern ones. That's what I'm saying is I was going to say it's hard to find it from before a certain point. Yeah. Because um the sort of like the nuances of trans lives get we have a certain understanding of language and what trans identity is now that maybe doesn't reflect the actual lives of trans people 50 years ago mm-hmm. and as a result we don't look at those figures as being part of trans history yeah so I, there's different language there's the definitions have changed over the years mm-hmm. um certain words have gone out of vogue exactly so this is a chapter from... Including the word Vogue. Yes. <laughs> so I have a chapter from uh, Out of the Closet into the Archives written by um, Liam Oliver Lair, who is a trans scholar. He mo- mostly focuses on... His work mostly focuses on um, historic, like historical emergence and divide of the categories of transsexual and transvestite and okay. like those words. Um, so this... A chapter is called Interrogating Trans Identities in the Archives. Um, And what he's doing in this chapter is talking about his experience working with the Kinsey Institute archives. Kinsey Institute archives being one of the largest, if not the largest, sort of archive of queer history. And so he's talking about, like, his experience with that research and, like, his frustrations, basically, with, like, archiving and things like that. Um, But he he says, he's speaking about uh, Christine Jorgensen who is, um, in his words, undoubtedly one of the most famous trans-identified people in U.S. history. She is a trans woman who publicly sort of was outed in the 19- in 1952 with a New York Daily News article called XGI Becomes Blonde Beauty. She sort of became, like, the first in uh, the U.S., the first, like, publicly known to everyone across America case of a person having um, a person transitioning physically, right? So he's talking about that. And he says, part of my frustration with Jorgensen's primacy in American trans historiography is how a focus on her story 
elides not only the multiple trans narratives that existed within the same historical context, but also how it denies the complexity of the relationship between sex and knowledge production around historical and contemporary understandings of sex, gender, and other aspects of identity. Speaking to this deficit in the scholarship, notable trans studies scholars, including Suzanne Stryker and Bobby Noble, have articulated the urgent need for a deeper engagement of transgender studies with the, quote, complex interplay between race, ethnicity, and transgender phenomenon. Noble, in particular, has highlighted the limitations of a predominantly white referent for the transgender subjectivity as currently represented in critical theory and draws our attention to queer of color critique in relation to current figuration of trans subjectivity. So he's talking about how like we have this one very famous narrative and that's sort of become the um, stand-in for like what a trans narrative is supposed to be, how we recognize a trans narrative. And um, Jorgensen is an important figure, but she had a very particular life experience that does not reflect the broad uh, multiplicity of life experiences that trans people have had throughout history. He says, creating space for multiple and complex trans narratives historically does justice not only to the women whose stories are found in the archive, but also to those engaged in queer justice struggles today. He says this, he talks about um, in his newest book, Normal Life, activist scholar Dean Spade argues for a move towards a critical trans politics and epistemology that demands more than legal recognition and inclusion, seeking instead to transform current logics of state civil society security and social equality. This call to action must also include a recognition of the narrative and stories of trans individuals who were and are denied an authentic claim to trans identity because their narrative does not fit. So there's no, like, what it comes down to is that there are, there have been trans people all throughout history, but because um, when we are as historians cataloging their lives, the ways that they engaged with their gender and sexuality and their performance and other aspects of their lives doesn't fit a um, particular narrative that we understand to be the trans narrative, quote unquote, based on a particular model, they end up getting erased or swept aside or uh, categorized in a way that maybe they wouldn't categorize themselves. And we have no real recourse for it except to be sensitive to that fact as like working as contemporary historians. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you to maybe talk about queer erasure and how that happens i mean i feel like that's what you've been talking about yeah basically this whole entire time but if you just want to say give me like a quick little definition of what queer erasure in history is sure just my definition or do you want me to find yeah it? just try just sure. say it so i would define queer erasure as something something that happens over time based on limited understandings of queer identity that don't match up with contemporary definitions that leads to queer figures being obscured or erased, having their identities erased so that we just don't know if like figures we know existed that we don't know their sexuality or people that don't get to exist in the historical record at all. Thank you. That's great. So with that, <laughs> that ends my section. So when we're starting to think about this idea that there, it's hard to find trans history, yeah. queer history. So I 
wanted to talk about Jeffrey Catherine Jones, who was a trans woman um, cartoonist and fine artist and illustrator um, who only passed away recently, 2011. Mm -hmm. And there isn't a biography or a book about her. Right. And so what I ended up pulling are primary sources. I went to her website and got her own her own words. I have a few other sources. I have I just have her comics in front of me right now. Yeah. So what we're going to try to do, what I'm going to try to do in my segment is just sort of build a biography about Jeffrey Catherine Jones and hopefully bring in I know that she's talked about in illustration circles. She's a well-known figure in illustration and fine art and painting. Her peers are still alive, still teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to be able to view her and her career through this lens of talking about trans artists and trans cartoonists, because that isn't something that has happened, at least in what I've seen. Right. So Jeffrey Catherine Jones is a complicated figure to talk about in this context. Yes. Um, and part of the reason being is that her she lived her life 1944 to 2011. The heights of her career, 60s, 70s, 80s. Mm-hmm. But in this article by Stephen Ringenberg, um, this was written a few days after her death. It's titled Jeffrey Catherine Jones, A Life Lived Deeply. It was published on um, the Comics Journal. Uh, Stephen, the author, wrote that um, Jeffrey Catherine Jones began hormone replacement therapy in 1998. Um, So she transitioned later in life. She would have been 54 years old. Yeah. And it would be after the height of her career. Yeah. And so most information about her uses her the name that she was using and the pronouns that she was using during the height of her career. Right. So it causes a lot of the research for her to involve a lot of speculation on either the material that we're researching to learn about her, Mm -hmm. on the, the speculation on the author's part, ignoring on the author's part, um, misunderstanding on the author's part, and speculation on me as a reader and a researcher on her and her life. Right. So what I'm going to do everything that I can is try to use her own words. I found her website. Her her, her website is down now, mm-hmm. but I found it using the web archive Wayback Machine. So oh, I yeah. found Yeah. So I what I did is actually I found her website the latest iteration of it after her passing. Okay. So, um, if it had been updated, it would have been someone else who had updated it. So I tried to find one as close to her passing away as possible. Yeah. And then, so I found that and she had written a lot about her life and she has like an autobiography on the, on her website. So I pulled a lot of information from that and her own words. I have another book. So like I said, a lot of this, you will use her professional name and her past Right. So this book is titled Jeffrey Jones Sketchbook. Um, It was compiled by Jeffrey Jones and George Pratt um, with an introduction by Michael Freelander. It was published in 2000, I believe. And I have more information about this. So that's another source that I used. And this is an interview with her, Mm -hmm. right? So in theory, these are her own words. Um, However, 
my guess is it was probably transcribed by someone other than her. Right. So it's sort of, it's not necessarily a primary source. <laughs> right. Yeah, interviews are fraught often because inter- there is an editing process with interviews uh, where the person who conducts the interview transcribes usually, or editorial teams, like they look at it and they have to modify things. Um, and and uh, best case scenario, it's just grammar. In a worst case scenario, things get taken out of context or like edited for format or things get changed. Yeah, there's lots of lots of ways. So yeah. in theory, this could be her own words. Um, I'm assuming her website is her. Right. Um, this is sort of her own words. Edited. Edited in some capacity, transcribed in some capacity. Yes. Um, and then I also have the comics journal biography that was written after her death. It um, sort of goes back and forth in pronouns. Uh, a lot of information about her talks about sort of like a nervous breakdown and it's unclear what that is. I personally chose for this podcast and this specific topic to talk about her and also talking about the queer underground and queer erasure. Yes. I personally chose to actually not talk to, because she has a lot of peers who are still alive. Right, right. She only passed away... Recently. Well, six years ago. Six years ago. Seven. So that was a choice I made. This isn't necessarily talking about this. I'm not writing a biography of Jeffrey Catherine Jones. Right. I did research with these research materials. And I think that's where I'm coming from. Because I was not sure if where I wanted to go was personal accounts with her friends and doing interviews like that. Because I just didn't feel like it's still not a primary source. Because this would be her life through these other people's eyes. Yeah. And there is, um, there can be an issue in a lot of, um, you see it a lot in scholarship about trans women, particularly where their lives are sort of turned into a spectacle. Yeah. That, that was another thing I was nervous about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, but we, you know, we're highlighting her in this episode about queer erasure because she, identified herself as a trans woman like in her in her words right i don't think she used the word trans woman she used the word woman woman okay so she identified herself as a woman and we um are interpreting her as a trans woman figure but it's still not it's hard to you know what i mean you don't want to make you don't want to reduce her to that right yeah no absolutely i just want to talk about her and her artwork right and she just is also like she's a, a a a queer figure yeah so but i wanted what i did want to talk about uh, and (laughs) this is where this intro is going is the materials i was using misgender her right and use the wrong name right then what she goes by at the end of her life right so uh jeffrey catherine jones was born january 10th 1944 she -hmm. passed away may 19th 2011 Sort of, so the Steven Riggenberg Comics Journal obituary says, Jones enjoyed a unique position in the worlds of comics, fantasy art, and fine art, for her work encompassed all those separate dominions at one time or another. Um, She was really interesting, and on her website, she talks about when she was 1951, when she was about six years old, um, she saw uh, comic racks, and so... What was this history of American comics in the 1950s? This is the height. Yeah, this was pre, well, around the era of Wortham, pre the Senate court hearings. Yeah. So this is 
extremely this is when comics were extremely popular and this is her childhood was reading comics and this sort of goes throughout her whole life is that her life perfectly and her career matches this history of comics and it matches the history of the underground Mm -hmm. and fantasy art which is what she's like mostly known for is doing these fantasy art paintings yeah and so her career is sort of this perfect little line of american art and american illustration yeah yeah so she's like a really awesome figure in that sense she saw her first comic when she was six years old in 1951 it was kubert's tor 3d comic which uh e has talked about 3d comics 3d comics were oh sort of a A marketing gimmick a marketing gimmick yeah Uh, (laughs) 50s when um the bubble was about to burst and then it super did (laughs) yep so pre-burst bubble um so it's so funny that she talks about this on her website yeah um i'm just gonna read her own words I had no idea there was a Kubert back then, but I knew that I suddenly wanted to draw comics to create heroes, maybe to protect me from my parents or other bullies in the neighborhood. I grew, I drew, I took art history and saw what painters had done with visions. Now I wanted to paint to protect myself from the bullies in life. I drew comics for fanzies starting around 1964 and did my first professional comic for Wit's End in 1966, though it was published years later. I went underground. So she lists off some of the thi- some of the publishers that she worked with, Last Gas Comics, Screw Magazine, the East Village Other, while and she moved to New York City and she was fighting with publishers in New York City. So this is in her 20s. Yeah. So she started doing comics in fanzines in the underground. Yeah. So back to the Comics Journal article. So he lists off some of her professional work in comics. Um, so she did comics for King Comics, Gold Key, Creepy, Eerie, Vampirella, as well as um, Wally Wood's Wits End, which I just mentioned, um, and lots of cover art and illustration for um, sort of sci-fi fantasy and ma- magazines such as Amazing and Fantastic. Also, she did uh, well-known the in- both covers and in- interior art for Vampirella. So I haven't really talked about what her art is really like yet. Yeah, you should do that. Yeah. So her art, she's known for drawing very classically... She's not classically trained because she actually got her degree in geology. Yeah. (laughs) She didn't go to art school. Instead of using my own words to describe her work, I actually really want to talk about this interview that she did with David Spurlock and George Pratt. Okay. Um, So this interview is from March 23rd, 2000. So she graduated college with a degree in geology in 1967. And then she moved to New York City. In this interview, she talks a lot about her art teachers, um, some actual art teachers and just some mentors. She also talks about some going to see paintings in New York museums. And that really was how it was her introduction to fine art. Mm -hmm. Because she took an art history class in college. But it was all slide memorization. So I promised I would talk about education, right? So, like, <laughs> art history at this time, and it's still sort of true, art yeah. history classes are a lot about memorization. Yeah. But she got finally got to go to New York museums and actually see the actual paintings. So this is a quote. But when I went to New York and actually saw paintings for the first time hanging on a wall in a museum, I was floored. I could not get enough of it. I'd never seen anything like it in my entire life. The Rembrandts and the Vermeers had air in them. 
Those things existed in space that didn't even exist. It was this flat thing on the wall and there was this, you could breathe in there. You could feel the temperature. You knew what the humidity was like. You knew everything about this place. Um, so it was through viewing um, paintings in museums such as Rembrandt's and Vermeer's. She talks about a lot of other artists, but it's sort of like those um, very representational yeah. uh, painters that she really responded to. And she took this and she really learned how to paint by doing paperback covers. She says in this interview that her second year painting ever, she did 58 paperback covers. Yeah, so that's that's what I say. That's what I mean when I'm saying she is like American fantasy art. Yeah, right? incredibly prolific. Incredibly prolific. But she actually talks about how many publishers there were. I was very lucky and very blessed because there was no way in those days not to get a job. Everybody was art hungry and there weren't enough artists to go around. There were thousands of comic book companies, thousands of paperback companies. In fact, paperback companies were born, would publish 100 books, and die in two-week periods. It was an amazing time, the early 70s. And not only in paperbacks, but in comics, too. Oh. It's just amazing. Yeah, no, that's, like, really good. Yeah. So around this time, she started Idol at the end of 71. So Idol is her first long-running, her own independent strip. I guess it wouldn't be considered independent because it was actually published in National Lampoon. Right. So again, her history is so tied with these things that are so integral to what is considered the canon American history. Yeah. So she started publishing Idol with National Lampoon. Mm -hmm. um, it was it ran in the magazine monthly for five for four years. Yeah. Um. So she was publishing in a humor magazine, National Lampoon. National Lampoon launched Chevy Chase. It launched. Saturday Night Live, a lot of those people met each other through National Lampoon. So it's like she was part of like this, just like really there in yeah. the New York scene in a really real way. Yeah. Um, and so she, this is a quote from the sketchbook interview. I've always been interested in humor in a funny kind of way, as we say, because when I was at Lampoon and I would bring in Idol every month, they would look at it, nod their hands, their thumbs would come up. Not a month would pass that they wouldn't remind me that it was a humor magazine. It finally got to the point where they said, as long as you laugh. So I would come in laughing. It was a kind of game we were playing because the stuff was oblique and esoteric. <laughs> so it is, if you <laughs> So I'm going to read from the introduction to, they published after her passing in 2011, Grant Books published a collection of all of her idol strips and her subsequent uh, series, I'm Age. So those are her two main comic titles, is Idol and I'm Age. Right. I'm Age is pur purposely looks like image, but it's I'm Age. Oh! <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to read from the introduction for that collection written by George Pratt, who was her personal friend. In those National Lampoon magazines were the Sunday Funnies. Michael Kaluta did the masthead, a quaint throwback to the 1920s of a family in a sitting room reading the Sunday broadsides. In the middle of the, these bizarre, to my young mind, strips, Trouts and Benny, Dirty Duck, etc., was Idol by Jeff Jones. A nude girl, pregnant with thought, wandering a nondescript location, musing on various philosophic notions. The stories didn't really make sense to me, but the art sure did. I couldn't stop looking at those amazing drawings. 
and my fascination had nothing to do with the girl being naked, although that was certainly titillating. Well, okay, I was hooked on the nudity. But those drawings, they hit me where I lived. They basically did to me then what they do to my students now, which I show them the work. It takes their breath away, literally. It's like I've been kicked them in the stomach. Exquisite brush drawings, quite unlike what I was used to seeing in comics. This wasn't about explosive action and things breaking out of the panels. Idol had such an economy of line and the compositions weren't cramped. There was room to breathe. I'm going to find another thing where she's talking about Idol. This is to quote um, from the, her words in the sketchbook interview again. So this is her talking about her comic style. Mm-hmm. I didn't sit down and learn to draw from comic books. And maybe that's why my style doesn't look like comic books. I learned to draw from the model, from art books and museums, and more from life than from comic books. If I learned to draw from comic books, or if someone who's asking me for advice had learned to draw from comic books, what you would find is that you'll be drawing more and more from your head, and less and less from reality. Primarily, I get bored with formulas. And so the interviewer sort of goes back and forth with her. So this is the interviewer. Did you ever decide that you didn't want to be associated with comics or you were embarrassed by comics? This is Jones. No. I stopped doing comics because I got more interested in painting, not because I had anything against comics. Interviewer. Comics are the hardest thing to do. (laughs) Jones. Comics are extremely hard to do. To do a series of pictures and tell a story and have some words, it's very difficult. In addition to Idol, she also did I'm Age. That was published in Heavy Metal. Right. So she sort of talks about the difference. So she did eight years of comics. Don't know if she took a break between them. I I don't have any information on that. I'm sure you could just look at printing dates. Um, But I think they were pretty close to each other. Okay. So this is her sort of talking about in the sketchbook interview. She's talking about um, the similarities between these two strips. They're kind of the same strip. Um, (laughs) The major thing that is the same is that they're drawings of naked women. Actually, the only difference is that one is done in pen and the other is done in brush. One is called I'm Age and the other is called Idol. (laughs) Basically, they're pretty much the same thing. In Idol, you only have one character talking to animals. In I'm Age, sometimes you actually have two human beings, but it's never a male. Well, there was a male in one of the Idol strips, but that was a mistake. In both the strips, the males were animals. Those are the similarities. That was a mistake. It's really good. Yeah. So I don't know if you've sort of gathered from this, but these comics are naked women standing around in sort of a empty fantasy void, really. There's sometimes trees, there's animals, and they're sort of having philosophic considerations. I sort of want to read one to you. I don't have a specific one. And they're also maybe funny and maybe they're not funny, but they're funny in a way that you think maybe they're not funny. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me, I'm just going to read this. Okay. So it's a woman, first panel, she's nude, she's pregnant, she's beautiful. Uh, She's sort of leaning on a tree, some sort of vegetation. She's saying, being alive is wonderful, but there are many dangers, like vacuums. I keep a careful watch out for vacuums. Next panel. The molecules in the air are moving all around. Sometimes a molecule is here. Sometimes it's there. Next panel. It's close up on her and there's a snake sort of crawling up her body. Usually there are just as many here as there. That's because of probability. She's climbing a tree. But it's possible for them to all find themselves over there. The snake is looking into her face. Then a vacuum would have got me. Next panel, there's like a beautiful tree in a forest, and she says, I keep a watchful eye out by breathing. That way I'll know which way to move. 
the final panel. Being alive is just about the best way I know to get dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the comic. <laughs> just a beautiful woman walking around. There's a snake on her. She's talking about molecules. That was a National Lampoon. It's so good. I know. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> now you know what we're talking about. If you haven't looked up her work, Google her work. Um, so I already mentioned that at the same time she was doing comics, she was doing illustration. Uh, she quit comics just cause she just got more interested in painting. Mm-hmm. And then she sort of finished, she just sort of stopped doing illustration as well. I have a few quotes from that. This is from her autobiography she wrote on, published on her website. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a longer quote. Okay. When I was young, my passion was art, eventually comic book and fantasy art. I'd seen a lot of people lose their childhood passions, not only for art, but also for life, just getting squeezed. I don't have any answers. My passion was and is my art. However, there was a time when I became aware that I might be losing it, having used my ability to draw to buy approval from my childhood peers. I entered the real world with my cash in my pocket. I wanted to be published so badly that at the beginning I took a lot of work that I hated. Ah, but maybe a million people would see it and love me. I lived in fear. What happened? I found that the more I went with the drawing board or the easel to do work I hated, the less I wanted to go there. I was losing my joy. I found eventually that my joy was more important than approval. I began to get difficult to work with and began to lose jobs. I became determined to, well, not so much have it my way, but to do work I loved. It's not so easy to pursue or even know what your heart's desire may be. We as human beings have different stories, but we're all the same in that we identify the same feelings in each other and every one of us. Fear is probably the most basic. All else is built upon fear. Hate grows out of fear, envy out of fear. But I think that basically fear is certainly self-centered. It is the fear of not getting what I want or losing something that I have that keeps me out of the perfection of the present moment and suddenly living in the future. I have no control over the universe of events about yet to happen. Each and every moment, if I need to, I must remind myself that right now, everything is okay. Right now I'm alive. I have in my life those things that remind me to stay alive. I am loved. And more importantly, I have the ability to love. There is an acceptance of events beyond me that I have in order to ground me and allow me to let go. What is the best thing that happened to me next? I don't know. But I always know that I want to happen. And there I dare not go. So I ask myself some hard questions and find if I am fearless and I want what I have, the rest is a grand adventure. I, there's a reason I really wanted to use her writing and her words. Yeah, she's very, um, she writes very beautifully. Yeah, she's a, yeah, she's a writer. Yeah. So this isn't just a straight biography, you know? Right. I wanted to use her own. This one's nice. So just her talking about her artwork. I sort of glossed over the illustration, but she's she's basically stops getting interested in illustration. She has a quote in this interview where she sort of gets sick of talking to art directors. This is one of the reasons I stopped doing commercial work, book covers and illustrations. Art directors, more often than not, demand to see a sketch. Why? They don't trust me? <laughs> because they went to art school and feel like they want to be part of the creative process? I don't know. I never really knew. I have constant arguments with art directors about this sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so eventually Jones, she just stops getting hired because she refused to do sketches for editors and art directors. And this is another great quote. 
hey, if you want a painting by me, trust me to do the painting. I'm not painting your ideas. I'm painting mine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, she says this nice thing. Comics are real art to me. The combination of words and pictures is a literal, vastly unexplored territory. The only other combination of words and pictures at the time was illustration, which I quickly became to believe as immoral, even though I was a part-time illustrator. (laughs) Uh, This is a great note. I just love this so much. If anyone out there has previously stolen, lifted, or appropriated any artwork from me, please feel free to keep it or sell it or trade it in all good conscience. I also believe in bootlegged and pirated publications. This may be art, for God's sake, not a stolen 67 Camaro or confiscation of cash from a bank teller's drawer, and belongs to the people. Get it out there. Stop all this it's mine mentality. Exposure to music, literature, poetry, and all this stuff is the only way people can improve their lives and hence the state of the world. It's a noble lift and a pride and a humbleness in being part of the human race that makes us better. I can make more and I'm not starving. Not so good. <laughs> um, so this is from her website, just copy and pasted um from her biography. So just sort of talking about her and her experience as a trans woman. Some of my early memories came from about the age four or five. By then I knew I wanted to be a girl. Maybe I was born with a kind of gender inversion. Some would call it a birth defect. I know nothing of these things. I do know that my identification was always been with females in books, movies, art, and life. My best friends had always been female and I have always been exclusively physically attracted to females. So along comes puberty. Whoa. We were all confused. I know. But within that maelstrom was my desire and the, the desire to be a girl. Until the age of 12, I knew nothing regarding sexual matters. I saw boys with girls. That's what I saw. In the South in the 50s, there were no gays and no lesbians, and certainly no one like me. Oh, I didn't mention she was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Ah. So it's the 50s in the South. Yes. So I became secretive. In my own world, I became ashamed, guilty, and worthless. This was the road I started down so long ago. After many years of therapy and many years of trying to drink away the shame, I arrived, zip, <laughs> to the year 1998. In August of that year, I decided to stop the denial and start living as a woman. In October, I finally obtained the name of and saw the leading expert in the subject, the New York endocrinologist who wrote and rewrote the book. After extensive tests, both medical and physical, I started hormone gender reassignment therapy. It's been about 10 years now, but back in May, blood tests showed that I had become medically female. process continues. Para and androgens are tenacious. As my doctor put it, I will induce menopause in you so that you can enter puberty again, this time as a female. My development is just that. People have been unimaginably supportive, and slowly that shame is passing away. My wife, Mary Ellen, has been the background through all of this. I've never known such acceptance and love. People have also said to me how brave I must be. If I understand courage to be self-possession and resolution in the face of fear, then that's certainly no bravery there. I had no choice, really. There is certainly no fear of being female. Is it the fear of castration or the loss of testosterone, that wall of defense around the precious Y chromosome, the fear they speak of? Who knows men? And I was one for 55 years. And that's the way the paragraph ends. (laughs) Oh, that's so, yeah. Um, Yeah. Let me see if there's anything else. Oh, this is such a beautiful quote about art from the sketchbook interview. 
she says, um, so this is about observational art, landscape painting. Yes. Um, I grew up like every kid grows up. And by the time you're 18 or 20, you've, if you've seen one tree, you've seen them all. If you've seen one rock, you've seen them all. Then you go through the rest of your life and you don't even look at anything ever again. When I first discovered art in museums and paperback book covers before the museums, I'd look at this painting of a tree and say, man, look at that tree. Look at that tree. <laughs> I was only interested in that time in the painting of a tree. Eventually, I'd walk outside and see a real tree and think, my God, I realized that I had been a long time since I really looked at a tree. Art introduced me to the world around me. I was more interested in the artists that saw in a similar way to what I saw rather than artists whose visions were totally different from mine. Um, she has another lo lovely little quote. So it's a bit a rude. <laughs> oh, a rude quote. Um, this is one pet peeve I have with art. It's about self-expression being called art. I think the worst possible kind of art is that art that comes from self-expression. Art is all about communication. It's about what we have in common, not our differences. The more different I am than the rest of the people, the less interested they are in what I have to say. The more I can show them how we are as human beings, all see something, feel about something, experience something, the more valid it is as a piece of art. As an artist, it's our job to somehow put this down and communicate it so people can look at it and say, thank God I'm not the only one. That's what makes art noble. I love that. Yeah. I think she, I think... I can see where she's coming from saying that she's such an artist. Yeah. She's interested in depicting the world around her, communicating to people. She chose comics because it was an unexplored art form. Right. She did illustration, but eventually she realized illustration was immoral because it wasn't speaking the truth and communicating. Right. Yeah, that's Jeffrey Catherine Jones. Thank you. Include her in your histories. Yeah, thank you, Kathy. I thought it was really important that we talk about her, and I'm glad that you brought so much, and especially of her own words. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Now it's time for a regular segment, Letters to the Editor, where we talk about um, material um, from previous episodes or any letters that we've received. Do we have anything this week? Week? Month? Do we have anything this month, E? No. <laughs> I don't really have anything for Letters to the Editor this time either. Yeah, I've been busy. <laughs> oh, no. You know what we're going to have about Letters to the Editor? He's got big news. Big comic scholarship. Very awesome news. <gasps> and they're going to tell our podcast audience. Okay. Um, I will be joining the English PhD department at University in Florida. Uh, University of Florida English PhD department being the it's not the only graduate program that has a comic scholarship specialty but it is the only one that'll take you without a master's so <laughs> so we're gonna keep doing this podcast because uh sharing academic information I mean I got my master's degree last year and then we yeah. started this podcast sharing research in a accessible way is the entire idea and the entire goal. The difference is going to be that I personally will actually have access to things now. Whereas I have been sort of um, deep web researching. <laughs> with, 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 uh, there was like a three month period where I had access to RISD materials. 
And then aside from that, I, I don't have university credentials and a lot of stuff is locked by university credentials. So we're going to break open that ivory tower and we're going to keep recording our podcast. Yes. Cool. Congratulations. <laughs> Alright. Um, so this is drawing a dialogue. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we're going to thank Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communist. You can get it off their band cap. It's an intro to outro. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can head over to comicarted.com or specifically drawingadialogue.com to view citation for this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at drawadialogue because drawing was too many characters. Um, You can always tweet at us. We like seeing it. Tweet at us. Email us. Yes, email us stuff. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at e. Hetcha, which is E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me at Twitter at Kathy G. John. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Uh, so, E, what are you reading? So I love poetry. I have a hard time keeping up with it. But I recently rediscovered Margaret Atwood, who is, she was a poet I really liked in college when I studied visual poetry. And I specifically was reading Small Poems for Winter Solstice. Um, which is uh, a collection and a very beautiful collection at that. Cool. What are you reading, Kathy? I also brought poem uh to this episode. So I, it was Frank O'Hara's birthday recently. Um, so I pulled out. I have a full collection of everything that right. he has published, and I found this poem that I felt was like really appropriate for our current time with um a lot all the student protests. And everything that's going on. So I'm going to read this poem. It's titled, Poem. Today the mail didn't come. And Berlin was happy. There was no bad news. A student with a mustache was repairing the facade of the Hotel Kaminsky. With glass that was falling apart. And it suddenly started raining. And people kept right on walking. With the hopelessness of leisure. And the light improved. And the student wouldn't stop working. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah, I like it. Oh, very good. This was Drawing a Dialogue. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye.